Good morning. <coughs> My name's Luke. I'm one of the uh, student ministers here, uh, which means that I'm actually a student uh, at Moore College, which Hugh was talking about a moment ago. Uh, Moore College has been an important place for me. Uh, one thing I've really learned is the um, real importance of understanding the Bible deeply so you can teach it clearly. Uh, and the way that I'm about to preach today is the way that I have been trained by more graduates, and it's been using the skills that I've been learning at Moore College. Uh, so I'm hugely thankful for the place, and uh, if you see anything good in my preaching today, it was because of them. Uh, anything bad, it's because of me. Uh, but how about I pray and ask for God's help as we come to his word. Heavenly Father, uh, we pray today that as we come to look at this passage from Isaiah, uh, please give us great understanding into what it means. Uh, please teach us uh, and help us to respond in faith, uh, trusting in you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Berlin is soon to become home to something truly unique. Jews, Christians, and Muslims are planning to build a house of worship here, uh, one that brings a synagogue, a church, and a mosque together under one roof. Uh, the three separate sections will be linked by a communal room at the center of the building. Uh, this will serve as a meeting place where worshippers and members of the public can come together and learn more about the religions and each other. The House of One will be a symbol of peaceful dialogue for the whole world. Uh, so says the website. Uh, pretty cool, isn't it? Uh, given the awful history of Germany, uh, given the current fear and prejudice many people have towards those of different religions, peaceful dialogue and education can only ever be a good thing. But what is their future hope? I'm still trying to work out. Uh, it appears to be a world where we live in peace and nothing divides at all, certainly not religion. Uh, and that really fits uh, with the mood of our age, I think. Because in our current age, we have discovered that, in the end, all religions are the same. We all worship the same God. We just call him by a different name. You know, some people use Jehovah, others Allah or Krishna or Buddha, but they're all the same. And we're all the same. We are mortal humans reaching towards the divine. And when you look at the different teachings, Sermon on the Mount, the Quran, the Bhagavad Gita, they all boil down to the same message of peace and love and tolerance. So, let's aim for peace. Let's learn from each other. Let's not focus on differences or talk about right or wrong. We're all the same fundamentally. You carry on with your religion, and I'll carry on with my religion. Or, if the case may be, no religion at all. And if we all do that, all will be well. Unfortunately, the God of the Bible didn't get that memo, as we see in today's passage. He says, I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. The God of the Bible will not share his place with others. Besides him, every other God and religion and philosophy is nothing. Does that sound a bit jarring? Uh, it certainly does when I hear it. Uh, why should we believe this bold and exclusive statement? Well, 
God defends himself and gives an answer in this chapter of Isaiah. Uh, So whether today you are someone who agrees with the statement or disagrees with it, let's look closely together at what God has to say uh, to defend himself. Uh, And he starts by asserting that he is the one in control of everything. Uh, So please grab your Bibles, uh, open it back up to Isaiah chapter 44, and look at verse 24. In this um, first section, God's going to show four ways that he is in control of everything. Uh, First up, God is in control of what happens to the nation of Israel. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. Uh, God chose the nation when he chose Abraham and said, I'm going to make you great. Uh, And he redeemed Israel when he freed them from slavery in Egypt. God had redeemed them once, and he promises he's going to redeem them again. Uh, A couple of weeks back, we heard about how um, uh, Isaiah had said that uh, the Babylonian Empire was coming. They were going to come, destroy Jerusalem, and take a bunch of people captive, and take them as exiles in Babylon. Uh, This happened in 586 BC. Uh, You can see on the map uh, the route that they probably took. God is the redeemer of his people, and he's going to free them from Babylon as well. God is in control. Secondly, God is in control of everything because he made everything. Uh, Look at verse 24. I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by himself. God created the heavens by himself. He sort of pulled and stretched out and shaped the Milky Way spiral galaxy. And after finishing off the billion trillion stars or so, he then turned his attention to planet Earth, spreading out and smoothing out the continents like sheets on a bed. Uh, I drove with a friend from Cairns to Sydney uh, a couple of years back. That was a long drive. God did a lot of spreading when he came to Australia. God is in control of everything because he is the creator of everything. Thirdly, God is so in control of his, um, so in control that his words always come true. Uh, in verse 25, he talks about frustrating the diviners and wise men and fortune tellers. Uh, these are people who are trying to predict the future. But God makes fools out of them uh, as horoscope after horoscope gets it wrong. But come to verse 26, when God speaks about the future through his servants and his messengers, God is in control. He confirms and fulfills and makes it come true. Uh, And his message uh, is this, for Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited. For the cities of Judah, they shall be built. I will raise up their ruins. Uh, And that brings us to the fourth point. God achieves his purposes by controlling kings. Uh, The king who God picked was Cyrus. In verse 28, he says, He is my shepherd. He shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Uh, Cyrus is going to do this because God is leading him. Look at 45 verse 1. God has grasped Cyrus's hand and is leading him along to subdue nations, to conquer the world. And God's just not just leading him. 
God goes beforehand. Verse 2, I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. This is sort of like a superhero movie. You know, the bad guy is just calmly walking through this battlefield and nothing can touch him. You know, the bullets bounce off. You know, someone throws a car at him. It explodes and cracks into two and misses him. You know, he comes up to the building and the steel door's shut. It gets slashed to pieces and he just walks through and takes control. God will clear the way and give Cyrus the victory. And did you see what God called him? He called him the shepherd and his anointed one. These are titles usually only um, God will use for the leader of God's people who will save them. This time, God has chosen to use a foreign king of the world empire to bring salvation. God is in control of everything. The stars, the planets, the climate, kings and presidents, even our everyday life. I don't know about you, but uh, though I really believe this, I often forget it. Uh, This usually happens when I'm anxious about something or afraid. Uh, Because when I'm afraid or anxious, uh, my brain instantly starts uh, switching into problem-solving mode. You know, how am I going to fix this? Uh, It also switches onto its uh, pessimistic mode where I'm sure this is going to be a hopeless case. It's all going to be a disaster. And the last thing I think about doing is praying. Uh, And if if I was honest at that point in time, it was because I didn't actually trust that God would or could solve my problem. I needed to do something about it. But God is in control of everything. He tells us, cast all our anxieties on him because he cares for us. The people of Jerusalem were facing destruction and exile. Knowing that God was in control must have been hugely comforting for them. Let us take comfort in the same God too. Cyrus was God's instrument. Uh, Cyrus was the king of Persia. Uh, You can see on this map uh, where Persia is. Uh, And when he became king, step by step, he took on the Babylonian Empire and started taking over the world. And in 539 BC, he took over the capital city of Babylon. Uh, The Babylonian king was so unpopular at that point uh, that the people of the city didn't put up a fight. Uh, The Persian army just walked right into the city. God had cleared the path. And soon after that, uh, Cyrus started making some new rules in his brand new Persian empire. We read about one of them in the book of Ezra. Ezra chapter 1 verse 2. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. And he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. So Cyrus had taken over Babylon, and then he said to these exiles, go back, 
go back to Jerusalem, rebuild the temple. On top of that, the Persian government is going to pay for it. Uh, sounds too good to be true, doesn't it? Uh, but many people have doubted the story over time uh, until this was discovered. Uh, this is called the Cyrus Cylinder. It's a royal proclamation that Cyrus made when he came into power. Uh, this included sending exiled people back to their homes to rebuild their temples. Um, Jerusalem's not actually mentioned on this cylinder, uh, but what we read in Ezra fits so well with what it says that it seems that God, uh, Cyrus must have returned other nations, uh, such as Judah as well. Uh, this here is a really important piece of biblical archaeology. Uh, it's housed in the British Museum in London, and I took this photo when I was there a few years ago. You might not be able to see uh, very clearly, but it's actually quite shiny. Uh, that's because when I uh, turned up, uh, I discovered that the real thing had been loaned to another museum, and this was just a replica. Uh, and for a history nerd like me who was looking forward to this so much, this was devastating. Uh, anyway, important piece of biblical archaeology. Uh, and Cyrus did just what God had sent him to do. Uh, he had God's instrument for achieving his purpose. And God gives three reasons why he did it. Chapter 45, verse 3. God does this so that Cyrus may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who called you by name. Cyrus needs to know that it was God who made it all happen. Verse 4, God did this for the sake of the people of Israel, to redeem them from being exiles. And the third reason comes in verses 5 and 6. Let me read them. I am the Lord, and there is no other Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, in order that people may know uh, from the rising of the sun in the east and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. God has done all this so that the whole world from east to west will know that he is the only God. And the world will know that he is the only God when they see what he declared long ago come true. Uh, to put things into perspective, uh, have a look at this timeline. Uh, in 701 BC, uh, BC, Assyria attacked Jerusalem, but God saved them. Soon after that, God spoke through Isaiah, saying, actually, Babylon is going to one day come and conquer you. Uh, and then Isaiah writes chapters 40 to 66, which we're looking at uh, this half of the year. Uh, these chapters talk about the time uh, of exile in Babylon, but also about King Cyrus and when he comes. So 586 BC was when uh, Babylon destroyed Jerusalem. About 539 BC was when Cyrus came. God told Isaiah these words 100 to 150 years before they happened. Uh, you might be here today and hear this and think, wow, that sounds great, but couldn't it just be made up? You know, perhaps after Cyrus had come, you know, someone made it appear that it had been written earlier just to make it seem like God was, in, was powerful and could predict the future. I mean, you know, you give it a go. Try pick who will be the dominant empire in the year 2167, and on top of that, 
try and name who is going to be the leader of that empire. Uh, it, it seems ridiculous even to attempt it. But that's what God says right here. Um, what makes me trust this, even though it seems incredible, is that this wasn't the only time Isaiah got it right. Last week, we looked at chapter 42, and we heard about the servant. Uh, in the next couple of weeks, we're going to hear more and more about this figure called the servant. And uh, we have copies today of the Old Testament, including this passage, from the first century BC. That is, you know, the century before Jesus was born. And when we start to look at Jesus' life, uh, we're going to see that he fits the bill. Jesus fits this description of the servant in incredible ways in how he lives and how he dies. This description was written 700 years before he was born. Uh, God can and has predicted the future. He did it with Jesus, and so I don't doubt that he did it with Cyrus as well. And God won't let anyone forget this fact. Uh, Starting in chapter 41, God has got involved in a sort of boxing match. Uh, God stands in the middle of the ring, and he's challenging people. He's urging them, come on, challenger, come on in. He says to the people of the world, come along, bring your your idols, bring your gods. Uh, Let's have a bit of a fight. Let's have a competition. You know, you get your idols to do something. Get them to predict the future. Uh, See if they can match God and his power. And the knockout blow comes in this chapter. Uh, so great, I'll turn to chapter 45, verse 20. Uh, this is God continuing his, his challenge. Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, you survivors of nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this about King Cyrus long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. No other God has met this challenge. No other God or idol or religion has predicted the future. Only the God of the Bible, who is in control of all things. Uh, And this holds true today. Uh, What other religion has successfully predicted the future? Islam? Hinduism? Buddhism? Not to my knowledge. Where is a prophecy that has been fulfilled so spectacularly as how Jesus fulfills the Old Testament? I don't know of any. And this has been saying for us today too. Uh, look at verse 20 again. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. It's a big mistake to ask for help from one who cannot help. Uh, if you break down on the side of the road, you need to call the NRMA, not Domino's Pizza. <laughs> uh, or, or take the example of my friend. Um, he went to an eye doctor one day with a sore eye. And he got told he had cancer of a different part of the body. Now, now my friend could have sat there and insisted, oh, no, no, I've got a sore eye, you're an eye doctor, 
fix it. But that would have been foolish. And thankfully, uh, he went to the right specialist and got treated successfully. But we can be foolish in the very same way. Uh, Most of us aren't tempted to pray to a wooden idol. But yet, we often end up relying on things which are just as futile. You see, in ancient times, people didn't worship gods and idols because they loved them. (laughs) They were afraid of them. And they were afraid of the future. But by worshipping idols, they were doing whatever was in their power to make the future good for themselves. What are you afraid of in the future? Uh, How are you striving to make your future good? Uh, Many things in life have a a prophecy of the future tucked away sneakily inside them. And, And it goes like this. If I just have this one thing, if I just do that, if I get this job or marry that person, then my happiness in the future will be secure. Uh, We don't pray to this as a God, (laughs) but we hope and we wish and we beg luck to be on our side to get it. Uh, I went to a financial planning seminar last week uh, because I'm really not very savvy with money. Uh, And the seminar was brilliant. Uh, I came out buzzing with ideas about what to do about savings and investments and super. And uh, maybe for the first time, uh, I looked ahead and thought, actually, I can make myself very financially secure in retirement. I'm in control. I'm going to make this work. And then I came back to this passage and was rebuked. uh, Because I know in my heart, I was starting to put my trust in something which cannot save. Uh, The presenter, he he told us prices will always go up and down and at some point they will crash. And you can't predict when. And he saw two of them during his career. Uh, He warns us if someone confidently tells us what's going to happen on the markets, ignore them. They're lying. It's a guess. No financial planner or forecaster or even ourselves has the power to make our predictions come true. It's a big mistake to ask for help from one who cannot help. If we truly want security for the future, it's not going to come from financial profile or career or our relationships or our experiences. They may be wonderful, but every one of them can fall to pieces in an instant. There is only one who is completely reliable. There is only one who can speak about the future and is powerful enough to make it happen. And chapter 45, verse 22, tells us what we need to do. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Every other God and religion and philosophy is ultimately empty and nothingness. Uh, The modern day claim that all religions are the same is nonsense. Turn to God and be saved. And in verse 23, he goes on to say, Do it now, because if you don't, you will do it later. 
God says, From my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. This word gets fulfilled in Jesus. Uh, Our New Testament reading from Philippians spoke about Jesus. God himself coming as a man. He died, he was raised to life, and one day he's coming back. And at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Turn to Jesus and be saved. If you don't bow down now, you will bow down to him later, and it will not go well for you on that day. Jesus promises a future greater than anything you can find on this earth. Anything you rely on in this life can fall to pieces in an instant. None of them can truly secure your future happiness. But the God who is in control of all things, who knows the future, who is powerful over kings and empires, turn to him and you will be saved with eternal life, eternal happiness. You will have true hope and true meaning. If you are not a follower of Jesus today, turn to him and be saved. Uh, Talk to a friend or me or Huey. um, We'd love to let you know how. For those of us who do follow Jesus, well, hear the warning of verses 8 to 10. Uh, The people of Israel get critiqued for their lack of faith. They too had a tendency uh, to fall into worshipping idols. Uh, What's going to help us there is not just to try harder, but to focus more and more on the truth. I am the Lord. There is no other. Uh, Write these words on your heart. Uh, One way to do this could be to include these words in your prayers. Uh, Pray, Heavenly Father, you are the Lord and there is no other. Uh, Spend a couple of moments praying about this and thinking about this truth. Uh, Ask God to forgive you for the things you have put your trust in, which cannot save. Uh, And finally, uh, this passage has got to be one which urges us on to evangelism. The modern viewpoint that all religions are one and teach the same thing can't be right. There is no other. Those in other religions are praying to a God which cannot save. Those who claim they have no religion are relying on things which cannot save. Our society may applaud the house of one and long for a society where everyone respects each other's beliefs and leaves them to their own thing. But we are always going to have to go against the grain on this one. Will you go and tell them to turn to Jesus and be saved? We follow a God who's in control of all things, who uses world rulers as his instruments. Are we in safe hands and secure hands? Uh, Let's tell the world about him.